there, I'm Andrea Koppel, and it's time for coffee, the podcast where you get to hear firsthand what the jobs and careers that interest you the most are really like. Hey there, Java junkies. Welcome back to another episode of T4C. If you're interested in learning more about how to use your history degree or how to build your interest or use your interest in history to build a meaningful career outside of academia, then this is the episode for you. Because my next guest is CNN's presidential historian, in addition to the many other hats he wears and has worn, which include presidential library and museum director for the former president, Richard Nixon, and on and on. But before I introduce you to Dr. Timothy Naftali, author of multiple prize-winning books, as well as the director of New York University's undergraduate public policy major, I want to make sure you've signed up for the Java Junkies Journal. That's Time for Coffee's weekly newsletter that comes out on Mondays, and it gives you an exclusive window into the episodes and the professions that we're going to be featuring that week. And it's super easy to do. Just head over to the Time for Coffee website at time4coffee.org. And the sign-up box is right there. Now, my Java lovers, please grab your mug and take a chug of your favorite caffeinated brew, because it's time for another caffeinated career conversation. And my wonderful next guest is Dr. Timothy Naftali, CNN's presidential historian since 2016, as well as the director of New York University's undergraduate public policy major, and he's also clinical associate professor of both public service and history. These are dual appointments. Dr. Naftali's expertise covers everything from national security to intelligence policy and from international history to U.S. presidential history. From 2006 to 2011, he was the founding director of the Federal Richard Nixon Presidential Library and Museum in Yorba Linda, California, where he authored the library's nationally acclaimed exhibit on Watergate, and he oversaw the release of 1.3 million pages of presidential documents and nearly 700 hours of the infamous Nixon tapes. Prior to joining the Nixon Library, Dr. Naftali was the director of Presidential Recordings Program and the Kremlin Decision-Making Project at the University of Virginia's Miller Center for Public Policy. He's also a prolific writer and author, and his award-winning books include a biography of George H.W. Bush, The Secret History of American Counterterrorism, and most recently, he wrote... Impeachment and American History, along with Peter Baker, Jeffrey Engel, and John Meacham. Dr. Naftali, Tim, welcome to Time for Coffee. Are you still caffeinated and ready to go? I'm always caffeinated, Andrea. You don't need caffeine. You're naturally caffeinated. Well, I I drink a lot of caffeine. My espresso machine gets a lot of work, let me tell you. Well, I don't have an espresso machine, but my little coffee pour over gets an awful lot of use. We should let our listeners know, Tim, that we are friends. And when you and I first met about 20 years ago, I was the one who was at CNN and you were at the University of Virginia at the Miller Center on Public Policy. And you had a super cool job, which we are going to talk about shortly. And I raised that 
because I want our young listeners to appreciate just how much our professional lives and their professional lives will zig and zag in ways they can't imagine. Absolutely. Yes. One of the things that I stress when when someone asks me, well, how did you go from here to there, is that I want to stress there's no plan. There couldn't have been a plan. There was no career plan. And whatever career plan I had, certainly I didn't I didn't follow. I mean, I think when I was born in Canada and initially I thought I might go into politics in Canada. I'm a U.S. citizen now, but there was a time I thought, well, I might go into politics in Canada and I might become a lawyer. And then I just decided that was not for me. And after going to college in the United States, I made my life in the United States. And I caught the I mean, I'd always loved history as a kid. But I got this opportunity to make it, or at least to try to make it, my living. And I couldn't possibly have predicted the zigs and zags in my own career. And I don't know if anyone can. This is not the era anymore. And I'm glad for that. But this is certainly not the era. And it hasn't been for a while. But this is not the era of a person getting a job out of college and staying in the job for 35 years. I think that world, it exists for a few people, but for most people that that era ended a long time ago. And so all of us have to be prepared for job changes, which means that the skill set you need to succeed is a broad one or is as broad as you can make it. Absolutely. And to second what you said, it's a good thing. I think it is a great thing that we are no longer company men and women, or however we self-identify, stuck in one institution for the rest of our lives. It is far more exciting and exhilarating to be flitting and flooding from one flower to the next. And speaking of flowers, actually, this has nothing to do with a flower. Let's talk about where you are right now, at least one part of where you are right now, the super cool job that you have as CNN's presidential historian. I don't even think there was a presidential historian full time at CNN when I was there. Is this a new position? Well, not only is there one, but there are a few of us. Doug Brink, I think Doug Brinkley has been... I think he's the presidential historian. I think Doug Brinkley has been a presidential historian at, at CNN for 20 years. I am another presidential historian. And Julian Zelzer does not have the term presidential historian, although that's what he can do. But he chimes in uh, more than chimes in, but is part of the conversation when we're trying to put the actions of this particular president into some kind of context. I have this job because I've done, I did a lot of documentaries. And one of the things I, I learned was to say yes to doing documentaries. And I did my first documentaries when my first book, One Hell of a Gamble, came out in 1997. And a lot of folks were interested in the Cuban Missile Crisis. Our book was based on newly released Russian material. So it, it, it was the fullest view of the missile crisis from the Russian perspective and included what people had learned on the American side, too. And that led to the opportunity to learn by doing in the television world. And I just started to do documentaries. And then I went to work for the U.S. government and I 
may have done one or two documentaries while I was working for the U.S. government. I was focusing on the Nixon era. And when I left that job, I started to get asked to, to do documentaries again. Although by that point, instead of people asking me about intelligence history or U.S.-Soviet relations, they were now asking me about Nixon. So I had a new set of documentaries, which I worked on. And it was because of those documentaries that CNN noticed me and gave me a tryout to see if I could become part of their team. And fortunately, they decided I could, and I, I joined up in 2016. Well, how wonderful for all of us that you are there. And all I can say is there may have been a presidential historian at CNN for 20 years, but he wasn't getting much airtime because <laughs> I don't remember him. And I think that you all are getting a heck of a lot more of a workout under this president than we were seeing with prior presidential. I don't, doubt, I don't doubt it at all. I'm sure that's true. Look, this this president, certainly in the first two years, people would want to know, is this normal? Is there a precedent for this? That was the way that they turned it. Has any president ever done this? And it got a little funny and boring because after a while, in the, the answer to that question was, no, this is the first time we've seen this. And then, of course, when we got into the impeachment inquiry, a lot of the questions came my way because people understandably wanted me to put into context and compare and contrast all the impeachments that we have had in, in our country's history and most significantly to compare Nixon to Trump because the crimes and high crimes and misdemeanors associated with, with Donald Trump approximated more the charges against Richard Nixon than certainly against Bill Clinton. And so the interest in somebody who could actually tell us how this was different and perhaps help us ask questions about where this might go, that was quite high. And I certainly benefited from it. And it was a great challenge and a lot of fun for me. Well, we are going to talk about your time in school a little bit later. But I want our listeners to know just at the outset here that Tim has degrees from Yale and Harvard, including his PhD in history. And you talk about trying to put things into context but how do you balance the demands of television, which is all about pithy to the point, just the facts, say everything in a minute to two minutes, with all of the incredible knowledge you have, Tim, and your desire to try to provide as much context as possible to your viewers? Well, I'm still a work in progress. <laughs> I don't know. I try. That's really a real, it's a real challenge. And I do my best by trying to choose the point I want to make and then make that point. Because, yeah, I, unfortunately, one of the drawbacks maybe to being a professor is that we're used to people listening to us and they have to. <laughs> and it doesn't really inspire discipline. So I think one of the things I have to kick myself and really focus on is being pithy and answering in a couple of sentences, which means knowing exactly what point I want to make. Yeah. So what would you say you do in the role as CNN's presidential historian? Could you give us an example or two of the type of reporting you do? Or would you say mostly sort of talking head in documentaries and live guests or in various packages? I do participate in live panels. And there, I think my value added is supposed to be that I'm contextualizing what has happened. And I am not 
I mean, I hope I don't see my job as being a partisan player. I have a point of view. People who've watched me long enough know my point of view, but I don't see myself as necessarily supporting one particular tribe in the American the American political life. And I also do a lot of packages and documentaries. So I I participate in both forms of of CNN's content. Right. So when you put on your historical hat, when the history of the 45th presidency is written 20 years from now, yeah. how do you think Donald Trump will be remembered? Well, I, I've been mulling over whether he will be the worst president or the second or third worst president in American history. I still think that James Buchanan has a lock on being the worst president in history because his actions weakened the union and partly led to the civil war. And I think that is the ultimate failure of a presidency. If you can't keep the country together, I don't see any greater failure. But in terms of modern presidents, I think Donald Trump is on track to be the very worst. And when I say that, I I mean his incompetence is unparalleled. Uh, Warren G. Harding was not a particularly competent president, but he wasn't stupid. And he also didn't try to divide this country. Actually, after the Tulsa riots that we've learned more about because the president sought to make his first, he thought, post-COVID, of course, it wasn't post-COVID, public rally in Tulsa, we were reminded of the, the massacre in Tulsa in, I think, 21. Well, Warren G. Harding was president, and and he tried to issue a healing statement afterwards. So this is a president. We have a president who is not only incompetent, but a divisive president. And the coronavirus challenge has shown the costs to the country of an incompetent president. It's a terrible thing. I, I wish we didn't have to go through this to see the costs of incompetence. All of those lives that we lost because our federal government didn't step up to work closely with the states and to send the right public message about the steps that each and every one of us can take to not only lower our own vulnerability, but to discourage the transmission of the virus. That's on Donald Trump. So I think that he will be remembered as as a low point. What I can't predict, and I don't want to predict it, because we haven't written this story as a people yet, is what the long-term damage of this presidency will be. Part of the damage is are the lives that have been lost. Part of the damage is the opportunity that has been lost in the international sphere, the, the good things that could have been done for other countries to stabilize the world, things that could have been done in Syria, all that lost opportunity. Some things will come back, like our alliances, because it is in the interests of Great Britain, of the United Kingdom, and of France, and of Canada, and Australia to have good relations with us. Those will come back with a new president. But what, what I can't say, because we haven't written that chapter yet, is what the effect will be on all of us. And that depends on the referendum in November. The American people now have no excuse. They know Donald Trump. They know his incompetence. They know how divisive he is. They know that he enables white supremacy. They know that if he isn't in his heart a racist, he certainly acts like one. And if they reelect him, that's that says something about where we have gone as a country. And that chapter hasn't been written. And so the long-term damage of Trump and Trumpism 
cannot be assessed at the moment. The fact that there is damage, that's around us. The consequences for our government of the impeachable offense that he committed in the way in which he perverted policy towards Ukraine and probably from John Bolton, at least is from his book, probably towards other countries in the service of the reelection. We know about that. The effect on careers of civil servants, we know about that. The way in which he's discouraged people from public service, we know about that. The cynicism that he has inspired in the young people who can lead us out of this mess, we know about that. But the extent to which that is all lasting damage, that will be determined in November. I read an article in which you were quoted. This was a recent article. And you said, with Trump, you get all the dark side of Nixon and none of the good. Yeah. Yes. Well, I said that because Nixon, for all of his flaws, and they were manifold, Nixon believed in government. I don't mean big government. I mean, he believed that the federal government had a job to do. And this president doesn't care. It's not like he has a vision of government that's a libertarian vision, which means it's very small. He doesn't care about government. He hasn't taken the time to hire for his government. He apparently doesn't do his homework. He doesn't prepare. And you can tell, it, you don't have to read John Bolton's book or an Anonymous or the you know Bob Woodward's Fear. You don't have to read these books. Philip Rucker, although they are very good, you know it from his tweets. You know it from his public appearances. He hasn't learned anything since January 2017. He's the first president that I've ever studied who has not learned a thing. I'm not talking about trivia here. I'm talking about learning how to be president, learning how to be commander in chief, learning how to be head of state. Those are things that are not intrinsic to any job other than being president. There is no real preparation to becoming president. There are ways of sort of understanding it. I mean, a vice president sees how it works, but the vice president doesn't bear the responsibility of a president. But the, so the job is unique. And that means anybody would have to learn. I don't care how smart you are, how stable a genius you might be. You have to learn on the job. He has shown no evidence of learning on the job. Well, and I think that he has also shown no interest in yes. learning on the job. Contrast that with Richard Nixon, and I'm no great fan of Richard Nixon's. My job was to make the Richard Nixon Library accessible to everyone and for it to be a safe space for research. It had been contested space because the family had owned the library. They then transferred 66% of the footprint of the building to the federal government. The documents were always under the control of the federal government. But there was a lot of concern that in this new space with the materials which had formerly been in Washington, now in California, that maybe there would be some restrictions on the use of them. And my job was to make clear, abundantly clear, no, this is an open space for everybody. But Richard Nixon changed his mind about China. There are a lot of things he changed his mind about. That, that's so important. Imagine Richard Nixon, who had part of the way he made his name in the 50s, was almost being a conspiracist about the role of China in the international system. He had been one of those who argued that the Truman administration had lost China, which is ridiculous. I mean, how the United States could have won or lost China, a country with a much larger population, is, of course, ludicrous. But he had made that argument. Well, he's the one who goes. He doesn't just have diplomatic relations or doesn't just start having diplomatic conversations with China. He actually goes to China as president. That's thinking outside the box. That's showing that he changed his mind. And that's leadership. Donald Trump hasn't shown anything like that. That's why the comparison between Trump and Nixon is useful to a certain extent because they both 
have similarly dark corners of their personality. They both are bigoted. They both are conspiratorially minded at times. But Nixon believed that the presidency was something special and actually tried to rein in some of his bad elements. There was sort of a Shakespearean struggle for him. Ultimately, the dark side won out. But he did understand the presidency was something special, not to be tainted. Whereas Trump doesn't view the presidency outside of himself. He doesn't see it as as a job he should live up to. He's dragged it to his level. Tim, we are doing this interview, just want to do an audible timestamp here, on June 30th, the very last day of Pride Month here in the United States. And as a proud gay man, I think our LGBTQ listeners, those who are interested in the field of history, the field of national security, would benefit tremendously from hearing your perspective on just how welcoming and inclusive and accessible and safe the national security, the presidential historical community, the federal government, frankly, is for LGBTQ plus professionals. Well, I I have to start by saying to the audience that there's a little piece of background that might be helpful to know. I didn't come out until I was 40. And everyone has a different, those of us who are gay or part of the LGBTQ community, we have, everyone has a different story. But I, I had just come out and I was very proud of it. My mom knew, I mean, I really came out and I guess I was making up for some lost time. And then I get this opportunity to run the Nixon Library. And the archivist of the United States at the time, Alan Weinstein, I, I knew him. And, and he knew I was gay because he had tried to fix me up with a woman. And I told him, I'm, thank you very much, but I'm not interested. And he, he asked me to be the, you know, the director of the library. And I said to him, I said, Alan, I mean, you know I'm gay. I'm not going to go back into the closet for any job. Now, I felt that there was, of course, nothing wrong with being out and being a library director. Nevertheless, this was a major job because the Nixon collection is a superb collection. And the Nixonians can be really tough. And I didn't mind that. But I just wanted to be sure. I wanted, you know, I said, Alan, I'm going to be out in Los Angeles. I'm just, that's, I'm going to live my life. I'm letting you know that. And if that doesn't somehow threaten the goal that we share for this library, great. And just tell me if you think it does. I wasn't apologizing for being gay, but I mm-hmm. I wanted, and I didn't want permission to be gay because I, I just wasn't going to take the job. And he was great. Not only that, we talked about how the library eventually needed an exhibit about Stonewall. And then I talked to the Nixonians and I did not have this kind of conversation with them. And they were interested in having me take the job because I was noted as an independent person. And I had worked with the Nixon tapes as a scholar at the Miller Center. And in the case of the Nixonians, they asked me if my whether I'd be bringing my wife with me. And I said, no, but my mother will be visiting. (laughs) (laughs) And. I never, because I had reached a stage in my career that was, where was quite secure, I never felt threatened, but I did feel I had an opportunity to, to lay a marker down for uh, members of my community that are more threatened and were in, more vulnerable than me. 
there were actually some of the, the volunteers that we had acquired, they had worked for the Nixonians, and then they stayed with the library when we when we took it over. We, the federal government, we, you, took it over. And a number of them would complain, and they used the F word about me. But people would come to the library, and then they would take them on a tour, and then say, can you believe the federal government put this F in the job? And some of these people were really traumatized by it, and they came and they complained. They said, do you know that you've got people that <laughs> complaining mm. about your director? And that's, unfortunately, it's that part of Southern California, Orange County. I worked with, I worked with the National Archives. The National Archives was very supportive. And those members of the volunteer group were asked to leave. The National Archives had, uh, and still has, of course, and now it's the law of the land, uh, wonderful regulations against hate speech and included in hate speech homophobic slurs. So I, I was very much backed up by the National Archives. I wanted to tell one story. I was honored in 2009 to be asked to give the keynote address on July the 4th, which for a new American is especially exciting. I'd become an American only a, a decade less than, what am I saying, much less than a decade before. I was asked to give the speech at the archives outside, so close to the Charters of Freedom. And they asked me, you can ask, you know, give any kind of Independence Day speech you want to give. And I wanted to talk about our evolving constitution. I'm not a constitutional lawyer, but I've studied enough of our history. And I wanted to talk about how every generation or so we expand our definition of freedom and liberty. Because I do not believe, I don't share this concept of original intent. I mean, having, I know enough about the founders' debates to know they didn't agree. So the idea of an original intent, I mean, what are you talking about? It depends if you're talking about Madison or Hamilton. Anyway, and definitions evolve. So I wanted to give a speech totally nonpartisan because the blessings of liberty have come from both parties, different eras. And I wanted to include, and that actually makes me a little bit emotional, I wanted to include the fact that here I was, a gay man with uh, security clearances, because you have to have them to be the director of a modern presidential library. And up to uh, 1995, you could be denied security clearances for being gay. And up to 1980, I couldn't have emigrated to the United States as an out gay man. Really? Yes. So I wanted to talk about the, and, and I'm of course, obviously, I was, I was talking about the, the struggle for freedom for African-Americans, the struggle for women's suffrage, the struggle for people with physical challenges, you know, the ADA, and tell the story of the evolution of the definition of liberty and that it is a ongoing struggle. I think of it as the, the realities of 1619 and the power dynamics, slavery, all of those things that emerged from 1619 with the Enlightenment. These Enlightenment ideas that maybe the founders didn't fully embrace because they didn't think of African-Americans as worthy of liberty, but their ideas were stronger than them. And it's the struggle and throughout our history and the outcome is what Martin Luther King and then President Obama, quoting Martin Luther King, have said about bending towards the towards justice. But, so I wanted to talk about that. And then there was the issue of should I talk about my being gay? And initially, the National Archives sent me back my draft because you have to share your draft. And they said, please don't mention your 
you know, your sexual orientation. And I said, well, I, I'm sorry, but that's what I want to do. I want to talk about the definition of liberty. And that's really important. And then they said to me, yeah, I know, but we're going to have a Republican and we're going to have, you know, because they invited members of Congress and they didn't want it to be too controversial. And, and I said, well, I don't know if I can give this speech. And I had also, I mean, I had talked about same-sex marriage as being the ultimate Liberty. Yeah. And of course, in 2009, I was a little early that, you know, in 2009, I had a bigger problem because the commander in chief was not pro same sex marriage publicly. His name was Barack Obama. So, you know, the National Archive says, yeah, but the president himself is not in favor of same sex marriage. So I said, all right, here's what I'll do. I'm going to talk about being gay and having emigrated here and having access and being able to have a security clearance. And I will not argue that same-sex marriage will happen as I did before. And so I gave the speech and I talked about the wonders of being gay and in the federal government. And at the end of the speech, I've forgotten who his name was, it was the Democrat congressman, he shook my hand. And I'm afraid to say that the Republican senator from Ohio wouldn't even look at me. Really? I just walked away. But I, my point is that there were, I, I can't possibly, no, I was in such a good position of power, I couldn't possibly know the pain that my predecessors had gone through. Even in my position, Again, I don't, I wasn't humiliated. I didn't lose my job. I didn't, but I could just, it gave me such a taste, a sense, an empathy that I talk about as being important for a historian of what it must have been like for people far more vulnerable than me in an earlier period. And this is 2009. In any case, that was my experience. And in academia, I've, I've not, not faced any, lately not faced any challenges at all because of my sexual orientation. So how would you describe the field writ large for LGBTQ historians and what our young listeners might expect if they decide to work for an archive or a museum or the federal government? Well, fortunately, the Supreme Court has assured us of rights in the workplace. But even more, even before these Supreme Court decision, I think in academia, we're okay, we're doing fine. And for the transgender members of our community, the Supreme Court decision is really important. I'm not saying that they would be better positioned to describe the discrimination that's in academia, but I know at least rhetorically, academia is, is a, welcome, a welcoming place. When we talk about LGBTQ historians, there are historians of LGBTQ issues, and I see this as a wonderful time for them. I think finally, that dimension of the American past and of, of international history is getting more and more attention. And so f for members of the community that want to write about our history, this is a very, a very good time. History departments need that dimension. Some of them already have uh, colleagues who teach that history. I, I am gay, but I, for the most part, do not write gay history, although I'm, I'm fascinated by it. And, and I think at some point I'll write something about gays in the intelligence community. But I, 
there are members of the community who write about the community. There are people who are, who are allies who write about the community, too. So I think when we talk about LGBTQ historians, this is a great time and an important time to be studying our history. And for those of us who are gay and write about other elements of history, I think it's academia is, is welcoming, welcoming towards you for being you. There still is the problem of a lack of jobs. That's a problem that every everyone faces. So, Tim, just getting back to your time at the Nixon Library, had you ever directed a library before or a museum? And I don't think you did. So how did you know how to do it? And were you nervous at all about stepping into that role? I had never run a library before. I'd run a much smaller humanities program at the University of Virginia. I, of course, was worried about making too many mistakes. I'm imperfect, so I know I make mistakes. I decided that I would not stay very long in the job. This was a decision that was a lot easier to make because I, I wasn't dragging a family all the way to California. I don't know if, you know, if I had a family, I was responsible for others or I was sharing responsibility for somebody with somebody else, whether it would have been as easy to make the decision because I didn't know if this would work out. And when I say I didn't know it would work out, it's simply because I understood that I would have to be uh, an ambassador to an unfriendly country, that I was going into a milieu where they did not like the federal government, where people were suspicious of the official verdict about Watergate. And I say official, it's bipartisan. I mean, Republicans voted against Nixon as well as Democrats. But there was a residual hostility towards that view. There was quite a bit of conspiracy thinking about what actually happened in 1974. And I would be interacting with Richard Nixon's family, who understandably would have an emotional tie to a certain interpretation of what happened. And I just didn't know how it would work out. I knew what my job was. And I talked with the Archivist of the United States and his team, and I had their full support in going and opening things and being straightforward about Watergate and discussing the president's abuses of power. There was no attempt to edit me or I didn't know how long this would work. So I went into this excited by the opportunity and determined to try to do a good job so that fellow scholars and the American public, the interested public, would find the Nixon Library to be a wonderful place to study that era and also the crimes that presidents can commit. When I was curator of the exhibit, I worked with colleagues to put online the evidence behind the exhibit, and it's still online. If you Google Watergate exhibit evidence, it's there. I put it online because the Nixonians wrote a 100-page screed against the draft exhibit that I submitted to my bosses in Washington. And I basically put this online to say to the Nixonians, go ahead, debate, debate the evidence. And also to help my colleagues in Washington who were not as up on the history of Watergate as I had become because of the job. For them to see, oh my goodness, you know, I'm Tim Naftali, is not ta- I'm not taking any liberties. I'm just laying out the story. But I felt that in a sense, Nixon had given us a playbook to understand how presidents can abuse power and turn the federal government against the American people. Little did I know that that playbook would be used by a president in my lifetime and that we would have the chance to relearn that really awful lesson. So does that mean you believe history repeats itself? No, I believe human nature repeats itself. I think that human beings are capable of greed and criminality, and some of them win presidencies. 
What are you most proud of accomplishing during your tenure? And I should say that you stayed in that role for a total of five years. You spent a year in Maryland and then you moved to Yorba Linda for four years. Well, I, mean, I was really lucky. I mean, I this was a tough job. I loved it. It was the hardest thing I think I've ever done. And I'm looking for hard things to keep doing, by the way. It's not a capping a career, at least try not to. But there were a series of elements that bring a smile to me and make me feel proud. The first thing is I got a chance to work with some remarkable people, my colleagues, the archivists. And I tried to create a good safe space for them. And that wasn't always easy because the Nixonians fought hard. They fought a rearguard action to try to control the spirit of that campus. And they sometimes made it made it tough on us and they would engage in little little humiliations. Their favorite, and some were large, most of them were directed at me, which is fine, that was my job. But I remember that one of their little, little games, there are obviously, there are all kinds of national events at presidential libraries where dignitaries visit. And one of them is the president's birthday. And it's customary that the United States government, and usually the commander in chief, will send a representative to place a wreath on the grave of a former president. That's a part of the president's club. So every year at the Nixon Library, we would have an event. And because the Richard Nixon Foundation represented the family and the wreath was given to the family, it wasn't given to the National Archives, they would be in charge of organizing the event. And in the case of the Nixon Library, we used to have an admiral come from San Diego. And invariably, when they would put all the chairs for the event, I'm not saying this is a major thing, but it was a kind of stupid little humiliations that happen all the time. They would never put a chair for me. I'm the director of the library, but they would, and, they, and the chairs all had names on them. And so when we would arrive to sit down, <laughs> I have to ask, I'm sorry. Oh my God. And they did it all the time. <laughs> You know, I'm glad you can laugh about it, but I think, you know, we're learning about microaggressions that take place every day against black professionals. But wait, that's why I'm I'm laughing at it, because this is not the same. This is what I want to make clear. This is not this is not the same in the era. And as we're now coming to grips with the story of Reconstruction and the second Reconstruction and the incomplete nature of the second Reconstruction and the residual effects of racism, not having a chair is nothing. But I wanted to mention it because it's not on the same scale, but it, it was just a slight little humiliation. But for my team, it was really a challenge that this didn't leach into our community and our culture. This, the fact that the, the Nixonians were, were so mean, mean-spirited. What am I proud of? I, a couple things. Uh, the Watergate exhibit, the oral history program, they, there was a, an audio oral history program that had been started by the National Archives Presidential Materials Project, the Nixon Presidential Materials Project. I expanded on it and made it a video oral history, and you can watch some of them. The public program we had. I wanted to end the, there had been an enemies list that the initial library had created, the private library, a guy named Hugh Hewitt, who is now quite famous as a pundit. Hugh Hewitt had been the first director of the private Nixon library, and he had proclaimed proudly that Robert Redford 
would never speak at the Richard Nixon Library. I made sure Robert Redford spoke at the Richard Nixon Library. And I made sure that John Dean spoke and that Carl Bernstein spoke. And I made sure that Al Haig spoke and Bud Krogh spoke. In other words, and that Art Linkletter spoke. I made clear that it didn't matter what you thought of Richard Nixon, that if you had a serious point of view and you could help people understand that era, you would be invited by the federal government of the United States to speak. My job was to eliminate the enemies list. And I, I think I did. It was a really great opportunity. And I thank all of you listening. Some of you are too young to have done it, but some of you are a little older and your parents for having paid my salary. <laughs> well, before working at the Nixon Library, you spent six years at the University of Virginia. And while you were there, you were the director of presidential recordings program and the Kremlin decision-making project. It's quite a mouthful. Can you just give us some broad brushstrokes about that project, the program, and your role in it, and how you got the job? I wrote a book with Alexander Frizenko called One Hell of a Gamble, and we benefited from a remarkable opportunity that occurred because the Crown Books Division of Random House did a deal with the Russian intelligence service to produce a series of books. It was a very peculiar time in the history of Russia. The Soviet Union had disappeared. This was 1992. And I had been studying the history of spies since I was an undergraduate. And I'd gotten to know a bunch of journalists, one of whom was John Costello, a British journalist, who had written a really superb book on Anthony Blunt. And anyway, John didn't know Russian, and I had studied Russian in college. I didn't know it really well, but I was getting better at it. And though my dissertation was not about Russia, it was actually about the origins of US counter espionage, I kept up my Russian. And he needed help looking at some stuff that the Russians were declassifying. And I got involved in this project as a consultant in the beginning. And then I was asked if I wanted to do one of the books. And it was a book on the Cuban Missile Crisis. And they also gave me a Russian co-author, Alexander Fursenko, an academic. I concluded, based on getting to know him really well, that he was not part of the Russian intelligence service. And because Alexander had the bug, he had that great curiosity for knowledge. He was irrepressible. He wanted m as much material as he could get. We, as a result of this project, we got access to some Russian intelligence material. And as I can read Russian, so I was reading these materials. But Alexander also had other contacts, which had nothing to do with the intelligence service. And he got access to the presidential archives, the archives of the president of the Russian Federation. So he saw Khrushchev's materials. Anyway, it'll make a long story short, we write the book. And then there's more material. It turns out that there are these notes of Kremlin meetings that, with the help of an American institution, the Russian archive, not the Russian, it's, the archive is part of the government, but it's not the intelligence community. It's the Russian National Archive could proceed with this release, and Alexander was going to be the general editor of the Russian volumes. So I had made this career decision my first job was a tenure track position at the University of Hawaii. And the uh, people at the University of Hawaii, the history department, were really good to me. And but I felt it was so far from Russia that it was difficult to do my research. And I was going to take a chance on a career on the mainland. So I left the University of Hawaii and I became postdoc for a couple of years. And I was looking for an academic job and one didn't happen. 
I had already finished a book, but there was no interest. So my dissertation advisor said, well, Philip Zelico, who was another former student of his, was just named the director of the Miller Center, and he needs young people who are interested in presidential history. And I was looking for a job, and I was looking for an institution that would partner with the Russian archives to produce the declassified Kremlin notes. And so I said, sure. I went to Philip. I said, I'd love to do this, but I really need, I would want the Miller Center to work on this. Let me do this Russian project. And he said, well, I'll make a deal with you. I'll let you do that if you run this tapes project. And I said, well, I, I had used some of the Kennedy tapes for my One Hell of a Gamble book with Alexander. I said, okay. <laughs> I mean, I was interested. Well, this is just one. And so that was the deal. So you made your own job. Oh, I had to. One of the things I discovered when I left the tenure track world was how difficult it is to join it again. That was a job that I put together taking the principal interest I had, which was in furthering this work on Russia, Soviet Union, and meeting a need that Philip Zelico had for someone who was interested in history and power, and especially foreign policy, to lead this group of scholars my own age. Let me add one more point. The outcome of this was wonderful because I learned so much about policymaking without ever having, at that point, been in the government. But the tapes are so rich that you get a sense of how presidents manage their time. You get a sense of the simultaneity of issues, that it's that no president has the luxury to just focus on one issue. They've got a foreign policy issue and a domestic issue and sometimes two foreign policy issues all landing on their plate at the same time. And they're politicians at the same time. So they're having to think through their priorities simultaneously. And that comes from the tapes. And unless you are an aide to a president, generally I'd say a high-level aide, you might never understand this. I learned this because of my role in the in the presidential recordings program. Plus, it opened to me domestic policy, something I had learned generally because one of my fields was American history in grad school. But this gave me hands-on understanding of the sausage making in domestic policy in the United States. So this actually was my training in presidential history. I emerged from that experience. And as I said, it was a result of I have a discussion with Philip Zelico. I emerged as someone who was somewhat skilled now in presidential history. And that's because I said yes to also running the tapes project in addition to continuing my work on U.S.-Soviet relations. I love that story for so many reasons, not the least of which, as you just said, the tapes part was what you had to do to be able to do the book research that you really wanted to do. And secondly, not only did you then become incredibly insightful about presidential decision making, but it's also informing this book that you're working on right now about JFK. Well, it was that experience that led me to think that there was we needed, well, we needed more than just my book, but lots of books about Kennedy. But I had other things to do in between. And the tapes project also made it possible for me to be director of the Nixon Library, because whereas I, I met Alan Weinstein as a result of the project with the Russians, the Nixonians, they learned about me when I was running the Tates project. And I ran the project to make stuff available. It wasn't we didn't design these volumes in order to have a particular approach. We just laid out the information and provided annotations to make things 
to contextualize things. We weren't interested in, in using it to attack or defend anybody. What I, Let me just jump in here very quickly because I think this is a super important point, and that is Tim's career path was not planned. <laughs> he did not think, ooh, if I write this book with Alexander, then I'll be able to leverage that and no. our access to all of these files to get a position at the University of Virginia with the Miller Center. And then that could lead me to team me up to become a director of the Nixon, the federal Nixon library. And then that could. No, 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 no. Each thing happened because he was interested in it. Well, I was lucky and I knew and I knew people and people knew of me and contacted me. I was very lucky, but it's serendipity that plays a huge role in my career. And I couldn't plan on ser- serendipity and, and no one else can. The The thing I did was I just tried my best when I had an opportunity to do my best and uh, to make the most of it. But I could never plan on having opportunities nor count on them. None of us can. Well, let us pivot for a moment in our remaining time together and just flash back very quickly to when you were in college. You went to Yale University and you graduated magna cum laude with a distinction in history. And the question I have for you, Tim, is did you know what you were going to do with that degree when you graduated? No, I didn't. I had this really good opportunity that arose as an undergraduate chair of a committee that selected curriculum, selected residential college seminars. Every residential college, there were 12 of them then at at Yale, had this committee. My college, Timothy Dwight, was the only one, I believe, where the chair was a student and not a member of the faculty. And I was the chair. And as a result, I met lots of interesting people. And I met Henry Lewis Skip Gates's editor. And Skip Gates was my faculty advisor, Henry Lewis Gates. And I met his editor at Oxford University Press. And I told her about the senior thesis I was writing. And she asked me to send it her way once I was done. And I did. And I got a book contract. So my life changed because I had not anticipated working on a book coming out of college. And so my initial expectation was that I would go to law school, either in Canada or the United States. And this book project changed things for me. So I went to the United Kingdom the next year to interview veterans of the Secret War of World War II. I had done interviews with American veterans of Uh, U.S. intelligence, and they introduced me to their colleagues from World War II. And so when I was 22 years old, I was interviewing former members of MI6 and MI5 to talk about the running of double agents against Adolf Hitler. And so it gave me this remarkable sort of oral history understanding of the secret world. They were in their 80s. I was, as I said, 22. The war had been 40 years before, but it seems like certainly in Britain, the intelligence profession is a ticket to longevity. And they opened this incredibly interesting secret world. And so I thought, oh, goodness, this is way too interesting. (laughs) Great. I think I want to see if I can make a living writing about these kinds of issues. So it took me a couple more years of 
figuring out if I wanted to be in politics or in, or in the Foreign Service. And then I ultimately, I went to Johns Hopkins Sice and got an MA in International Economics and North American Studies and then uh, thought about going to law school again and then opted to go to grad school and I went to Harvard. And I, I wrote a dissertation based on the research that I had done as an independent scholar, a little of the research I did as an undergraduate, but then research I'd done as an independent scholar. And I guess I thought maybe if I was going to get a job, I'd be getting a job teaching intelligence history, but there really weren't any jobs to be had doing that. And the, the Cold War ended while I was in grad school. And so because I'd studied Russian, I focused on seeing if I could take advantage of the newly released materials in Russian about the secret world. So I built on what I'd learned about World War II, and some of the careers of the folks that I was interested in for the Cold War period had started in World War II. So I, I had a sort of a genealogical understanding of this tribe, both American, Russian, or Soviet, British, French, and German. Incredible. Well, I think our listeners are connecting the dots here and can see the progression of just how one opportunity can lead to so many others, so long as you're leading with your interests. Two final questions, Tim. And I try to ask all of my guests these questions, in particular, a time in your professional life when you struggled. And I ask you, that, and I ask my other guests that, not to embarrass them, but rather to empower and comfort our young listeners so that when they stumble or fall down, they realize that it isn't the end. Often it's just the beginning of a wonderful new chapter and a wonderful new opportunity. And so if you could just share an example of a time that you struggled and maybe a lesson that you learned in the process. The first thing I want to say is that I've had and I'm having a magical life. I don't want people to think that I feel I struggled. I think that's important because I, I, I'm a really lucky person. I remember I was at a, so I think it was a, a winter holiday, probably known as Christmas at Harvard, a, winter, a Christmas cocktail party. And one of the tenured professors came to up to a couple of us grad students and said, I don't understand why you all talk about how hard it is to get a job. And I was waiting for the wisdom. And then he said, you know, I had to start my career at Brown. <laughs> I mean, I didn't make that up. And I, so I, you know, no, I didn't saying that. I, I don't mean to make more of it than what I, I'm not saying that, like, you were walking barefoot in the snow or anything like that, but that we all have ups all right. well, and well, downs in our careers. Although, listen, my parents went through a very tough time when I was in grad school, financially. And I came from a well-off family, but the recession of 1990-91 hit us very, very, very hard. And ultimately, it killed my father. It, it was so difficult. I was a great man, and, and he, just, he tried very hard. So I was in grad school, and my dad was still alive, but, uh, but it was really hard. And this made me more entrepreneurial, I think. I started to push harder and look for book contracts and because not only did I have to for myself, but I was worried about my parents and my sister. Fortunately I got a job. And then when my father passed away, I, I worried about my mom. So I don't want to say I'm struggling, but it, I needed to be more entrepreneurial. I, I had to try to juggle a couple of books at once. 
so that's part of the story too. I think I'd finished One Hell of Gamble, which, and it came out and it got really good reviews. I was the second author simply because, I mean, Alexander was 35 years older than me. He was a senior. And my profession has a hard time evaluating books with the have two names. And the fact that I had done all the translations from Russian into English and had written the book didn't give me any real cred. And so when I sought a job, I was a postdoc. I had a postdoc at, at Yale. I didn't get any interviews. I'm not saying I didn't get any jobs. I applied to 20 places. I'm not saying I deserved it and things worked out for me, but I didn't get any interest. And I'd written a book that reviewed by New York Times. It got really good reviews, but it was viewed as more of a popular history and it was a co-authored and and that was a, you know, I, I, I found a job. My dissertation advisor helped me and put me in touch with Philip Zellico, but I had another year on my postdoc and I didn't know what I would do. And similarly, after I left uh, the Nixon Library, which was my choice, and it turned out it was really hard to get another job. Now, I got one, but I didn't have lots. There was no interest in my teaching. Fortunately, two libraries were interested in me. And that's what ultimately got me to NYU. And I got to come back to teaching, which is a great love of mine. But my point is that there were a number of times in my career that I wasn't sure of what the next thing was. But I say this with a great deal of humility and gratitude because fortunately I did have the next thing, but it wasn't determined. It wasn't inevitable. Thank you so much for sharing that, Tim. What do you think the big takeaway is for our young listeners? Don't give up, but choose something you have a passion for. Because, you know, there are going to be challenges and it's a lot easier to roll with the punches if you love what you are trying to do. Absolutely. Final question. If you could go back to Yale and do it all over again, but based on the wisdom you have now, what advice would you give yourself? I would have come out at Yale. <laughs> okay. What advice would I give? I had a great time there. I don't, uh, I didn't, I didn't do it perfectly, but with the exception of my private life, which is an important exception, I had a fantastic time. I mean, I did, I did theater. I did, I did lots of extracurricular activities. I kept as busy as possible and I loved it. I, I think the courses I took were great. I might've taken a few more science courses, but really Yale was a, was a fantastic opportunity. I, I was really lucky. It was a good, it was a, it was a great time there. I, I think that uh, I don't have regrets because I don't believe in having regrets. But if I changed anything, I think, as I said, I would have come out there. Well, we are so glad that you have <laughs> and that you are living your authentic <laughs> self now. And I personally feel so fortunate to have had this opportunity to capture some of the magic of Tim Naftali and share it in a way that CNN viewers and others outside of your classrooms, Tim, may not have had. And just want to thank you so much for making so much time to have coffee with me today and with the T4C community. Well, Andrea, thank you for your patience. And I, I enjoyed sharing with you and with your audience. Thank you for asking all those questions. Thanks so much for listening to Time for Coffee, where the professionals in the jobs that most interest you always have time to grab coffee 24-7, no matter where you live. I have one quick favor to ask you. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe to Time for Coffee. Thanks so much.